Hannah, what happened in Koblenz since our last court update two weeks ago? I actually haven't been to Koblenz these past weeks, but I've read the ECCHR reports and I've spoken to some of my contacts on the ground in order to keep you updated on the recent developments. Um, so generally there were more survivor witnesses who confirmed once again the description of treatment and the prison conditions in Branch 251. These were actually the last survivor witnesses and plaintiffs before the collecting of evidence by the court is closed. So the Koblenz court is really trying to get a very complete picture of those contextual elements, it seems. Huh? And it makes sense if you take a step back and have a look at the large number of charges in the indictment against Anwar R. I mean, he's charged as a co-perpetrator in 4,000 counts of torture, 4,000 counts of torture, and originally 58 counts of murder. And this second part has actually uh, since the beginning of the trial been updated with another 10 counts, so in total 68 counts of murder. Right, and the court is gathering all the evidence presented to it in this really large framework of charges. So it makes sense in a way that we are hearing so many stories describing you know, the, the general treatment of prisoners and the prison conditions at Branch 251, right? Yeah. But um, there was also kind of a special testimony um, that, that uh, stuck in my mind, which was by a famous Syrian artist who testified an anonymously. So he's famous apparently, but we don't know who he is. Um, he was detained and he was interrogated by Anwar R. personally. And Anwar R., it seems, treated him quite well and told him that he wasn't, quote unquote, scum like the other protesters. And when the witness's father came to pick him up at the branch... Anwar R. went to meet the father and introduce himself. And apparently the witness's father was also a very famous artist, although we also don't know who he is. So the witness assumed that Anwar R. wanted to meet him because he was a famous artist. And this resonates with some testimonies that we heard in the past that showed that Anwar R. had a particular admiration for culture and arts, treating artists in the prison better than others, and having some light conversation with them about cultural topics. Um, and I find this very interesting because it reminds me of other historical contexts where professional cruelty went hand in hand with a certain admiration for intellectual and aesthetic sophistication. I remember when you told us about this testimony, we both you know, had this similar reaction and, and we talked about it. This historical reference, right? There, there is something about that. A well-known example of this, of course, is... Adolf Hitler's fascination with Richard Wagner and his operas. And also it reminds me of uh, the Bosnian Serb war criminal Radovan Karadzic, who, you know, reportedly was a passionate writer of poetry and not just reportedly. In fact, he had published some of his, I think, what real poets would say, rather mediocre poetry. <laughs> yeah. And I guess if we want to try to understand Anwar R a bit better, not just in the context of the charges against him, but like as a person... I find this a very interesting testimony. Yeah, I agree. And what else do you have for us, Hannah? Apart from the recent testimonies, I would actually like to use this update to tell you about two important issues that have been and are still being discussed over a longer term. So one of them is the question whether the trial should be recorded. This is something that academics and NGOs and others um, have been lobbying for from the very beginning, 
because they see the trial as historic and they want to preserve it um, for future generations, for example, to study it and yeah, perhaps even learn from it for future trials. I mean, this topic goes way back to the beginning months of the trial, right? I remember we did an episode on this in August of last year, of, of 2020. Exactly. And uh, last month, the court rejected this request for the third time. The judges had originally argued that recordings could put witnesses at more risk and also make them feel insecure and less willing to testify. But in the last request, the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights, the ECCHR, merely asked to record the final pleas and the verdict. This was also rejected, though, based on the argument that trials can only be recorded when of special historical significance for Germany. And they argued that this trial was only of special significance for Syrians. The court also made reference to this part in German law when they first refused the recordings back when we reported on it in August of last year. And I was wondering then, and now again, and for the third time, how does that make sense when you're talking about the worldwide first criminal trial against former Syrian regime officials taking place not in The Hague, not in any other country, but in Germany? Yeah, I mean, for me, this seems like another example of how the German judiciary is conducting an international trial in a very national framework. Because the whole principle of universal jurisdiction is based on the idea that certain crimes are so grave, they concern the international community as a whole, regardless of national borders. And yet, a German court argues that the Al-Khatib trial is not historically significant for Germany, and therefore, based on Germany's criminal procedure code, may not be recorded. That just doesn't seem logical to me. And if countries are to conduct more of these universal jurisdiction trials in the future, it only makes sense that they adapt their criminal procedure codes in an adequate way. And until then, journalists, NGOs, and of course us at the podcast are doing our best to document and preserve this important trial. You know, I, I find this one uh, a really hard one to, to pass. It's, it's probably a, a longer discussion that, that we and, and, and the whole field around this trial and universal jurisdiction should have. Because... I mean, sure, if, if the code on German criminal procedure just does not allow for it when interpreting it in a narrow sense, which is what the judges seem to have been doing, that's one thing, right? And you can, I guess, hide behind those articles and paragraphs if, if you want. But as far as I understand, the court and its judges do have the authority to allow this on a case-by-case -case basis, including if a trial is of special historical significance for Germany, which this one clearly is. It's almost as if the German system does not allow itself to be proud of an achievement, of being the jurisdiction that is pioneering in this sense. Yeah, I mean, this could be an evening-filling conversation and discussion, so I guess we should probably move on to the next topic. Yeah, okay. Uh, but I'm not going to let go of this, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so another debate that has not yet been decided is the question whether enforced disappearances should be evaluated as crimes against humanity in the indictment. In addition, of course, to the torture, killing and sexual violence against civilians. The joint plaintiff lawyers brought this motion forward also to recognize how much terror the Assad regime has caused Syrians by just disappearing their loved ones without a trace. I mean, until today, tens of thousands are still missing and their families don't even know if they're still alive. This motion by the joint plaintiffs has not yet been decided, but in August, the prosecution announced that they would not be joining the motion. 
that they are not supporting it. From what I understand from Syrian colleagues, this is perhaps the most underestimated and undervalued form of the structural torture in the whole Syrian tragedy. But when you look at similar historical examples of this crime, it it really becomes clear how insanely cruel uh, this actually is. Just thinking of, you know, other historical examples like the the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo in, in Argentina. Not knowing where your loved ones are, holding out this hope that becomes increasingly desperate, you know. Also in the legal sense, it's considered an ongoing crime. As long as the person or the body has not been found, it goes on and on and on. And from what I gather, and I can only imagine, right, it's it's a whole different level of mental torture on, on the family in the next of kin. And more generally, it really tears at the deepest fabrics of society. So, you know, that makes you wonder why, why did, in this case, the prosecution not agree that this crime should be qualified as a crime against humanity in, in the indictment? Well, apparently they argued that enforced disappearances were not the aim of the regime, but merely a side effect of arrests, and that the actual aim of arrests was to get information. And obviously the statement provoked anger among the audience and among the plaintiff lawyers, because after all, this trial has shown more than clearly that that was not the case. So many people were detained for no reason and tortured arbitrarily, and some were never even asked any questions. They were simply just punished for questioning their regime. The choice not to join the motion of the joint plaintiffs, I think, is also a strategic one by the prosecution, right? It would have put them in a really difficult position, namely to have to prove a crime that has actually never been successfully prosecuted as an international crime, never, in history. Not only would the prosecution have to show the systematic nature of enforced disappearances, specifically here, concretely, in the framework of the limited roughly one-year time frame of the indictment in this case, but it's also a really hard nuts to crack in terms of legal elements that need to be proved. For example, one of the prerequisites for this crime, one of the elements, is that family or friends of the disappeared person have to have requested official information on their whereabouts with the authorities and did not receive any. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why Syrians reacted with such disbelief to the prosecutor's decision. Because in Syria, there are hardly any official ways of requesting information on arrested people. And on top of that, whoever tried to get information would even risk uh, being detained themselves and tortured themselves. Right. But the prosecution would still have to show this to, to prove this element, which seems close to impossible, including for the reasons that you just mentioned um, in the Syrian context. Last week, I spoke to a colleague who has been in the field of international criminal law for a long time, and I spoke to her about this. She said it's one of those examples which clearly show that the crime, how it's now included in international codes, including in the German one, seems to have been designed and written by legal experts, perhaps with no or little practical criminal law courtroom experience. And that then the reality is that this makes it extremely hard for prosecutors to eventually practically and successfully prosecute the crime. So strategically, from the prosecution's point of view, they maybe just decided they rather don't even try. Yeah, I mean, imagine if they try and then fail, the headline could be 
Anwar R. and the regime he represented acquitted of enforced disappearances as crimes against humanity. Right, and that wouldn't only be unfortunate, but you know, perhaps also uh, counterproductive. So they chose to prosecute uh, this part of the indictment, enforced disappearance, on the basis of the German criminal code instead of the international uh, code of uh, crimes against international law. And so they're prosecuting it as a so-called national offense, which is less difficult and has a higher chance of succeeding. And in the end, that may be more important for the victims waiting for justice. You know, they're waiting for some kind of healing, at least if you compare it with a potentially unsuccessful prosecution as a crime against humanity. Well, let's wait and see how the court decides on this matter. I will definitely be back in Koblenz next week for some of the last testimonies. And I will let you know as soon as possible what happens. And then we're only going to hear the final pleas by the defense, the prosecution and the joint plaintiff lawyers before the verdict. Thanks, Anna. Speak to you soon. Branch 251 is a 75 podcast production. This episode was written and presented by Hanna Aritami and Fritz Streif. Production, editing and mixing by myself, Pauline Peek. Support for our podcast comes from German Federal Foreign Office funds that are provided by IFAS Civic Funding Programme.